Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today, we are bringing you another in our series called Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the sciences and arts are going to reveal to you, our listeners and the world, details of their courageous sub rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. Our purpose in creating this series is to counter the half-century of disinformation that our country, the United States, has led the world into believing about psychedelic medicines and inform the world that prominent, good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers, and civic leaders have risked their careers and their livelihoods in order to learn about and from these psychedelic substances and thereby allow the general public to benefit from their significant healing and creative properties. Our special guest today is Amanda Fielding. Amanda Fielding is the founder and executive director of the Beckley Foundation and is widely recognized as a leading force behind the current psychedelic renaissance. By establishing key research programs at some of the world's most prestigious institutions, including Imperial College London, Maastricht University, San Paul in Barcelona, IDOR and UFRN in Brazil, she has propelled the psychedelic science field forward over the last 20 plus years, conducting landmark studies, such as the world's first psilocybin for treatment resistant depression study on which Compass Pathways based their business, the world's first LSD, MDMA, and DMT brain imaging studies. You may have seen some of these uh, images in the New York Times, plus the initiation and collaboration with Johns Hopkins on the first study using psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy to overcome nicotine-addicted people. She has also co-authored over 80 research papers 
Since its inception in 1998, the Beckley Foundation has been on the very forefront of exploratory research into psychedelics and cannabis and evidence-based global drug policies. Through a series of pivotal international seminars at the House of Lords, starting in 2000, with leading figures from around the world in different fields, from science to politics, plus over 60 much-cited books, reports, and papers, and numerous meetings with thought leaders, academics, and policymakers at the UN and governments around the world, Amanda has ensured that the Beckley Foundation has been at the forefront of global drug policy reform, particularly in the field of cannabis and the psychedelics. Through her work with the Beckley Foundation, Amanda is bridging the gap between science and policy, creating a positive feedback loop with the aim of building and harnessing our knowledge of the benefits of currently prohibited compounds. She wants to optimize human health, well-being, and potential. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Amanda. Well, thank you very much for such a lovely introduction. I have to say I hardly recognize myself, but um, (laughs) Before I ask my first question, I want to make clear that I'm a doctor of clinical psychology, and as a result of my life work, I'm very comfortable asking people extremely personal questions in a matter-of-fact manner. That said, if I'm to ask you anything which you prefer to pass on, kindly just say, I prefer we pass on that, and we'll move right on to the next question. So I hope that's, I hope that's real clear. This is not a, a hardball kind of uh, tricky, it's a straightforward interview to find out about you. And let's begin with a few personal questions about your life. Where, where do you presently live, Amanda? I, I live actually where I was born, which is um, on the edge of a fen, up a long, bumpy track in an old um, medieval hunting lodge surrounded by three moats. So when I was a child, it was very, very isolated. No one came near us. It was much too cold and um, off the map. So, um, and, uh, give us, people here in America, some geographic perspective. How far are you from London? Um, one hour's drive. About and, an hour. I'm just outside Oxford. Um, okay. Ten minutes and, outside Oxford, but in the depths of the countryside. Uh-huh. And do you live with other people in this hunting lodge presently? Um, y- yes. I mean, I have a husband who's partly here, and I have children and grandchildren who are partly here. And it would be lovely all the time, but, you know, life is life. And to, uh, to be part of this Elder series, if, I'm, if I may ask, how old are you? Gosh, I always find it difficult to calculate. Um, I'm, I was born in, born in 1943, which makes me 70, 78 70. or so. So you definitely qualify as a an terrifying elder. age. Yeah. Well, 
I can but still remember it. Yeah, I'm 80, one still feels as young inside one's head as ever. That's right. Amanda, were you brought up with religion? Um, yes, I, I, I had a, a, a kind of um, combination. My mother was Catholic, an old Catholic family, which is very, very Catholic. And so I was brought up a Catholic. My father was agnostic, atheist. And very importantly, although I never met him, my godfather was a Buddhist monk who actually was rather famous and translated the kind of most sacred book in Buddhism in, from Pali into English. And, but, and he always had a strong influence on where I went. Presently, what is your present conception of God? Um, that's a funny one. I've never been asked that one, actually. Um, oh, good. Yeah. Let me just think. I, I became anti, not anti-religion. I always rather love the religious aspect. But I, I think in more of terms of spiritualism and um, unification, I don't think in terms of God, actually. I don't think that much about God. I, I think of more um, uni unified connectivity as the essence, in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, and um, how, how old were you when you had your first experience with a mind-altering substance? Do you remember? Um, yes. I mean, I had my first experience with the mystical experience quite often in childhood because it was such a isolated place. One had nothing much else to do except have mystical experiences. But um, my last – what did you ask? Sorry. I got, um, well, my first experience uh, to noticeability was when I was seven, when I was a bridesmaid at a cousin's wedding, and I met a very delightful other cousin who was also a bridesmaid, and we went under the table with a big white uh, tablecloth touching the floor, and we drank vast quantities of alcohol and got very, very, very full of laughter and basically uh. intoxicated. And that was a lovely experience. And, and you were um, about you're about seven. Seven, yeah. Yeah. And, and then I was introduced to cannabis um, when I was at Oxford by there were an older group of um, students who come back from whatever war it was, Keen, um, wherever it was. Um, they were the last to serve um, in national, the National Army. And so they were very cool. And they come back with cannabis. So I started smoking cannabis at 16. And like probably half all of people who started smoking cannabis in those periods, I was listening to Ray Charles and just bowled over with wonder at the, um, at the intensity of the, the extra perception. And I, I, I fell in love with cannabis at that point. And how soon after that uh, did you have an experience with what we refer to as a, a psychedelic substance, although cannabis 
in large doses, as we know, can be psychedelic. But in terms of other more traditional psychedelics, what was your first experience then? Um, my first experience was of LSD in um, 1965 um, in London. Um, and I was, again, amazed by its potential to cre create the mystical experience, which I had. Actually, I've been studying um, comparative religions and mysticism at Oxford under Professor Zainer, who was at that point the world's leading expert in those matters. And he thought that the mystical experience you get through drugs is something different from the one you get through um, endogenous means. And I have to say, I, I didn't, didn't and then definitely didn't agree with him. I would say it had great similarities. And that is the kind of wonder of the psychedelics, that they can open up the doors to the mystical experience. So it was 1965, and you were about 22 years old. Um, do you have any idea how much that first dose of LSD was? Um, I should think it was about 200 micrograms. And Thank you. Enough, um, yeah, I, I can, yeah, I, I can remember it very clearly. I mean. People would be very shocked by this, but for some reason, someone had lent me a great big uh, American jeep, and at some point in the in the um, journey, um, I was driving it back to Beckley, kind of attracted by a magnet towards Beckley, and I remember thinking all the lights were green. It was as if the fates had gone with one on this lovely experience, and. Anyway, it, it, it was a, a, a very wonderful baptism. And strangely, the LSD I had came from um, a Dutch scientist who was in Ibiza, who had made it in his friend's mother's kitchen in Amsterdam. And he was later to become a very great influence and in love in my life. So we were rather associated through the um, web of LSD. And after that particular experience, I gather it was a lovely enough experience that you were looking forward or wanted to or would welcome doing it again. Absolutely. But I remember um, expressing it as a inc incredible and wonderful but in a sense, uh, a visit to the fun fair. I didn't feel one could live on it at that point. And it was only um, later, through um, learning about its physiological underlying mechanisms, that I learned to really ride the horse other than have the horse ride me. And that was, for me, an amazing um, change in lifestyle because what I found at the LSD 
enabled was an expanding of cognitive functioning at a very high level, uh, both in awareness and perception, much deeper and richer, and both in art and, be and beauty and music, but also intellectually. I find it incredibly stimulating. And my passion became how to understand how this compound works. And so I, um, I went through a baptism of far, in a sense, where um, someone who I wasn't at all fond of, um, at that point there was a beginning of a psychedelic activity in London. And um, I had a flat overlooking Chelsea Embankment, which became a centre of activity. And then there was a kind of unwelcome member who, who came in and actually against my wishes, and when I had refused any um, dosing, poured um, LSD into my coffee and he had a vinegar jug of it because he got it from Sandoz, uh, a litre or something. And um, so... It, it was a very damaging effect, effect. and I retired back to uh, Beckley here where I was born and lived in a hut down here for about three months. And then a friend came past and said, come on, come out, let's go to a party, Ravi Shankar's playing, and um, yeah, time, time to get out of your nest. And I did, and there I met uh, um, this um, Dutch scientist called Bart Hugges, and um, we very met, we very soon um, fell for each other. And he was an amazing, I would say, the only genius I've ever met, and had a, a clear understanding. He, he was trained as a doctor, had a clear understanding of the kind of mechanisms underlying the changes in, in regards to different states of consciousness. His hypothesis was that it was increased capillary volume, both in the brain and in the body, through the constriction of the veins. And that um, had certain follow-on understanding consequences because it meant that to keep control of your consciousness, you needed to um, keep your glucose level in the blood stable. And then you were the rider of the horse other, rather than the other way around. And that was an amazingly valuable lesson to me. And it enabled me um, to live and work um, with LSD. And because my father was a very bad diabetic and I'd been the youngest and uh, his beloved companion, I was the one who fed the sugar into his mouth. He was an artist, so he didn't want to lose his sight and he kept his sugar level very low. And so I grew, had a very intimate knowledge of um, the sugar level of the blood. And so with this information about um, like irrigations, like 
um, I had a dream of watering the desert. That was my kind of ideal of what I do in my life from from the deserted Beckley home. And indeed, I went to the desert and had all sorts of adventures there when I was 16. And um, then I realized that understanding the brain and the potential of psychedelics was like watering. It was the same, not watering the desert, but it was watering the brain. And it needed a kind of skill to keep the irrigation right. And so that was a skill during the 60s. I, and in those days, probably you remember, um, these compounds hadn't been criminalized. Um, so they were part, part of um, the landscape, but not the criminal aspect, which then soon closed upon them. And that, I think, was a catastrophic mistake of mankind, led by America, sadly. Um, and with yes, led by America. Quick pursuit. Um, um, tell us some more, tell us some more, please, about the methodology, the tactics for riding the horse rather than have the horse ride you. Tell us in more detail about glucose and what other applications you used to learn to ride that horse effectively? Yes. I mean, I think it was seeing it in a different way. Um, we saw it that um, in the brain there are two fluid volumes, blood and cerebral spinal fluid. And when our ancestors stood upright, which had many advantages like running faster, seeing further, all sorts of advantages, but it was one disadvantage, and that was that blood is heavier than cerebral spinal fluid. So in the upright position, there comes a certain shift in the ratios between the two fluid volumes. And then when we are born, we all know we have fontanelles, and then the different pieces of bones close together, the sutras close as we approach adulthood around 21. And when we um, become an adult, there's a certain suppression of the pulsation, the systolic pulsation of the heartbeat in the brain, because it can't expand enough to allow a full pulsation. And that, this hypothesis goes, causes another um, fall of blood from the brain, which you can overcome in many ways, like standing on your head, or as indeed the Indians developed so beautifully in um, yogic practices, in meditation. All of those exercises have the effect of um, increasing the blood. And the other great thing that I discovered from self-discovery in the 60s, um, largely magnified by the fact that I was on LSD, was the understanding of the ego mechanism, the, the con internal control of how the human animal works. And um, 
we saw it as because um, the upright talking ape had lost a certain degree of blood in his brain, it compensated for this loss by um, developing particularly highly this mechanism of self-control, which all animals have, but we developed to another range of height. And that was through the development of the word, which then through conditioning, we associate the recognition of the word with a change of behavior. And that recognition of the word became the basis of this very controlling, um, repressive network, which is used to be called by Freud and others, the ego. And now in more modern um, neuroscientific talk is called the default mode network. And whatever it was, 50 years later when I was doing the first um, brain imaging studies with psychedelics, I always wanted to do it with LSD, but LSD was too uh, taboo by that period, so one had to um, do it with psilocybin, which no one knew how to spell or what it meant, and therefore it had much less um, negative baggage with it. And amazingly, our early hypothesis of the 60s was very satisfactorily enforced by seeing that through brain imaging, which was a recent discovery in the 90s, one saw that the um, blood supply to the default mode network, or what we used to call the ego, was decreased as one sensed it was, and the whole brain was more unified. And that was shown in some wonderful brain imaging images which came out of both psilocybin and LSD, um, that there's much more activity um, through the whole brain when on a state of heightened consciousness. So it's a rather fascinating fact, I find, that sounds kind of um, uh, destroyed religion and consciousness, in a sense. It was it made out that it was all old, outdated myth. But strangely, through the, in a way, the latest sounds, the sounds of psychedelics, it comes up that the mystical experience at the core of all religions is actually at the core of healing as well, because it's the most neuroplastic state that the brain is in. And so we can learn new behaviors. So the psychedelic-assisted therapy actually shakes the setting of thought and behavior. And if the person is in the right frame of mind, and obviously really good therapy helps that, the person can be in a position to change that setting and get rid of the harmful setting, whatever it was, of depression or, or addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, all of those things which upset a person's life's happiness 
they can get rid of that and reset their um, neuronal patterns in a way which is more in line with their own personal happiness. And it is rather, I find, satisfactory and ironic having to, in a sense, have retained some of my spirituality, which I had in childhood, to find that at the very centre of the healing process is the mystical experience. So I'm wanting to do a lot more research on the mystical experience because I'm using the key of fascination. Taking taking us back to those early experiences now in the 60s, uh, when you're learning to ride the horse, um, did you have other people that were colleagues and friends that you could talk to about these experiences, or were you all by yourself? What was it like for you personally in those days? Um, it, It was a lot of fun, I have to say. It, it was great fun. Um, like, um, before I met Bart, my apartment overlooking the, the river was a, um, a center of altered states of consciousness. Um, I hadn't, I'd only just moved in there when the whole Beatniks um, lot, what were their names? Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg, and all of that lot who were at, um, performing at the, um, Royal Albert Hall on yes, and they called Holy Communion. They all came and hung out on the floor in my flat, and uh-huh. so uh, that was this kind of baptism. And then, uh, so yeah, so it was very much the centre of that sort of activity. But then, when I got together with Bart and his great friend Joey Mellon, we became more. We, 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 in a sense, became the, the enemy because we were rather serious and we loved LSD for cognitive functioning, to think. Our, our game was thinking, why is humanity such a mess? What makes us such a kind of untrustworthy and frightening animal and yet so brilliant and potentially so noble? What, 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 how does one understand oneself and humanity more generally, how can we change it and enhance it? And so at that point, I'd I'd grown up in a very, um, whatever, cultural setting, but it was more beauty and uh, it wasn't a science. But with um, Bart, who had a kind of, encyclopedic knowledge of natural science because uh, his mother had died when he was 18 months giving birth to his brother. And so he just filled himself with knowledge about the natural sciences. So I, I caught a passion for that, for understanding the physiological and psychological basis. And um, so the next, whatever, 20, 30 years, um, we studied about humanity, studying. I always used myself as my own laboratory. And, um, and I think, I do think that knowing how to alter your state of consciousness um, respectfully and um, creatively is an amazingly valuable gift. And um, 
I, I think that the societies which have had it at their core, you can see in the civilization they produce. And it is always, very often repressed or hidden, like actually both my sons became classicists. But at Oxford, they weren't ever talked about Eleusis, where all the classical heroes went and took psychedelics and experienced dying and being reborn. And Christianity was very damaging to um, altered states of consciousness, although I'm sure, um, you know, the early saints, Christ and the early saints, well, in fact, I think Christ means drug taker. You know, I think it got a taboo which it should have never had. We should always have um, respected and thought of them like traditional people as the gift of the gods to be respected and honoured. And um, I'm hoping that my 1966, I decided really this is what I've been looking for. And I'd always felt that a slight vocation as a child. I was terrified of becoming a nun or something, getting the terrifying vocation. I tried on the nun's outfit in the school um, bathroom, decided, no, that wasn't for me. But it's, um, I think that spirituality is a, a fascinating thing. I think it's very related to um, intuition and other um, fascinating things like telepathy. And, um, so I'm very interested you know, in exploring those areas. During this 13-year period uh, when you're experimenting, um, how frequently were you taking LSD and, and what, what size doses were you taking? Well, in those early days... Uh, the kind of normal dose was 250 micrograms. Okay. And, um, which by today's rate is high. And I, I think today's, uh, today's standards are much better. I think it's much better to have a normal dose of around 100, 120. Well, uh, what makes you say that, please? Because there were quite a lot of accidents in, in, in the 60s. Um, accidents? Accidents in the sense of people flipping out. And I think that happens when um, people take um, too much in, in ignorance. I think there are certain ground rules one needs to know and follow. In such, as? such as? Such um, as ideally understanding or having a feel of what, how it works but then understanding that if you have more blood in the brain, the cognitive functions of the brain use a lot of glucose, so your sugar level drops. And when the sugar level drops, I mean, I knew intimately what happens with the sugar le- level drops because my father was this diabetic who I had to feed. So I knew the sugar level very, very intimately. And so I find it quite easy to see how you need to keep your sugar level normal to keep cognitive functioning at its sharpest. So if you were playing, say, a game of Go, we loved the Chinese game Go, do, do you know? And it, yes. it, there's no chance. It's, it's intuitive pattern recognition, basically. 
and, and right. Chinese generals used to play it instead of fighting wars. They played go. And um, so, and you have a handicap system, so you know how well you're playing against your opponent. And I and um, my partner, we, we played thousands of games and wrote them all down and really minded where winning and losing. And one recognized that one played a better game if one was on LSD and keeping one's sugar level normal. Because and did you use did you use little pieces of chocolate, or what method did you use to enhance the uh, well, sugar we, level? We had all, all sorts of measures, and funny enough, the company we always decide was our favorite immediately went bankrupt. It was as if we had a kind of spooked affair. affair on the, um, there was a wonderful almond cake and um, a, a peppermint mint, and they all went bankrupt. But and the, so one could just eat glucose tablets. And do you recommend? Do you recommend what? now? Do you recommend that when people take LSD, uh, at, say two hundred and fifty or a hundred micrograms, that during their experience they nibble on chocolate or or some kind of a, a, a substance with glucose in it? Is that your recommendation? Um, it depends what your aim is. If you're wanting to dissolve into um, whatever the infinite or um, um, psychoanalyze yourself, it's good to um, not take it, fall into the full kind of um, um, loose of ego control. But if you're wanting to do um, cognitive functioning, like we love doing, thinking about oneself, humanity, how, how does one change it, how does one better things, how does one treat illness, how does one treat the soul, you know, all the things that we're thinking about. Then you want to keep your sugar level somewhere near normal, not to say normal, but you want to know that if you suddenly get a feeling of paranoia or shakes or lack of control, with a bit of glucose, you can get it back. But more importantly, we had one basic rule, which was always to take time-release vitamin C, because then you need vitamin C to make adrenaline, and adrenaline is with what puts the sugar sugar level up in the blood. So if you've got a secure source of um, adrenaline, no damage can come to you. But there were people, I, I had a close friend, who thought it was all a joke and never really took the vitamin C or thing. And, and he had what one calls a flip-out, which was a deconditioning of the ego. And that's, uh, that, that's not advisable. It's not a, a good thing to happen. Is that what happened to you when you went into that three-month retreat when the person spiked your drink? Was that a, a sort of what um, you call a kind no, of... It, it, it wasn't. It was more... That was a more a single occasion. It was like um, a stab in the back, but it was in the brain. And yeah. it did a lasting damage, I'd say, but it, I didn't flip out from it because it wasn't, on the whole, you need an extended period. I didn't lose, I lost my consciousness. You did. I, I didn't lose it for a prolonged period. And I think yes. that's the difference. No, no. 
nowadays, of course, there's a lot of emphasis on the mental set of the person and the setting in which the LSD is taken. Do you agree with that, that set and setting are important? I, yeah, I absolutely do. do. Funnily enough, um, Bart was more kind of um, practical and, and felt, you know, if you have your vitamin C and, and your glucose in your pocket, it really didn't matter the setting. But I, I'm a lover of setting. I quite agree. I, I love the beautiful setting. And I think um, if, if you're wanting to enhance... But thinking can go on in any setting, basically, so it doesn't really matter for the thinking. But um, I think the internal setting is very important in order to take a psychedelic successfully. You don't want to be in the wrong frame of mind. Yes. Would you or, care, or you would want you? to be very um, you know, familiar with the setting. I, I, what I realized in 1966, it was, I realized what amazing potential the psychedelics have to both heal sickness and to expand consciousness in a both spiritual and intellectual way. And I, I feel truly blessed that I um, was so interested in consciousness and then I had the good fortune to meet someone who was actually unique in the world, who had a knowledge of how these compounds work in the body so that one could um, most safely make use of them. And, and that is something. So as to your question of who were my companions, I mean, I had lots of friends and people to know who were, but my two companions were Bart Hookers and Joey Mellon. And we shared a passion for the intellectual understanding and um, uh, discovering. And it was, for me, the most exciting period of my life, I have to say. Um, a wonderful love affair and uh, a kind of opening of doors that I didn't even know were there. So it, it was a highlight. Please comment on the difference between using LSD for introspection and looking inside oneself and using it to apply to a specific creative project? Yes. Well, um, I spent, uh, whenever it was, kind of maybe it was 67 for the next three years, I was really studying about the brain and one's changing states of consciousness, but I was also psychoanalyzing myself. So I was reading the full works of Freud and Reich and Nietzsche and everyone else. But I was, um, so I was taking, living really on LSD. We took it at that point every day. And, um, for the, the concentration, I would keep the sugar level somewhere relatively not, like normal, so I could concentrate. I mean, most people haven't read the whole of Freud and Nietzsche and a whole lot of other wonderful writers. They wouldn't have chosen to be on acid when they read it. But that was our choice. 
And then when you want to dig down into the um, neuroses and excesses of the inside world, then one would not take the glucose and let let the, uh, the emotions and the traumas out. So one could be, in a sense, both um, both therapist and patient oneself. Yes. To a certain degree, yeah. I mean, sure. I, I never actually went to a therapist. I never had the money or, or didn't know where one would find one. But <laughs> so that, that I did. And um, it, it, it was fairly, yeah, it was very fascinating. Do, do you remember the number of days, how many days in a row might you take 250 micrograms? Well, of course, as you take it more days in a row, um, you get, you don't notice the sugar level fall. And that's what I rather liked about the following days. They were, you were still high, you could feel, but you didn't have all that fluff and bother of, um, you know, it was more like a microdose. In fact, I would say I was one of the original microdosers because I was microdosing in the 60s by taking big trips every day. Um, but I always took the vitamin C and had the glucose near me or whatever, fish or food, you know. So I learned how to play it. And I, I, think, I think being high is quite an art. Do you know, I always used to say, actually, it needs more discipline to take LSD than not to take it. It's much easier not to take it. And to did, take did you, it. Amanda, did you learn and teach yourself how to function in daily life on 250 micrograms? Yeah, yeah. So I'm mean, pretty you well. I, I functioned, you know, um, probably... I wasn't a great um, cook or anything. I never, but I washed up. You know, <laughs> always my partner cooked, and I washed up. But I mean, could you do daily activities with two hundred and fifty? Could you go across town? Could you do errands, or 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 did you basically? Do you know it's immaterial if it was two hundred and fifty or a hundred? You were up there, but you didn't have the side issues of sugar lack. What we called sugar lack. Was, yes, um, and that actually, after the the psychological rape I underwent, that was the state I loved because it was high, but controllable. And I suppose I'm now, correct me here. Please correct me if I'm mistaken, but I came away from our last interview some years ago, thinking that you told me that at one point. You took 100 or more micrograms every day for 90 days in a row. Did I but get I that never, correct? I never counted it, so it's a hypothetical. Um, but, you know, what we did was, um, particularly in certain circumstances, if one was traveling the world, and I love traveling, um, and you going to beautiful places like Egypt or the desert or... Borobudur or, you know, lovely places, then it would feel as if one was sinning to the place if one wasn't high because its beauty was so immense. 
And actually, I do think that um, the use of psychedelics enhances the sense of beauty. And indeed, our, our, our research has shown that, you know, on psychedelics, as I know you would know, but um, there are many more parts of the brain involved in the perception. So instead of having 10% of the brain functioning, you've got 80% or 90% of it functioning. And so that makes the sensitivities much richer. It's like that first listening to Ray Charles on My Cannabis. Um, I suddenly thought, gosh, I've never heard it sound like that before. And the same is with beauty. When one's on a psychedelic, you realize that you're kind of seeing it at a deeper level. But of course, the natural endorphins can get you to that level. And so it's, it's, not, a, it's not the exclusive domain of the psychedelics. One can get that naturally. And that's what all great meditators and the superior people don't use the drugs. They get there endogenously. But you know, I was rather a foot soldier on that area. Did, did you develop methods for doing what we call bringing material across? In other words, having an experience or, or a learning <clears throat> during the psychedelic experience and then being able to use it in daily life when you were not under the influence? Did you develop methods for doing that, for bringing the material? Tell us, please. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we, we had um, kind of three years. But of course, at the same time, we had no money, so we had to earn a living. But um, it all welded together very well. And then one realized that our chief passion was trying to communicate um, the great potential of psychedelics. And um, that was, if you like, my destiny, I thought. How, how does one convert humanity, which is rather like um, the elephant in a story I read as a child, whose keeper wanted to give it a medicine to, because it was ill, and the elephant would always eat the bum and then spit out the pill. And that's rather like society about um, altered states of consciousness. I mean, from my own experience, I realized what amazing benefits they could give oneself or a person. And I longed to do the research or work with people who could help me do the research to investigate um, what is the underlying mechanisms happening which enables this change in consciousness to happen and how can we harness it better. And I realized in the early 70s, that the only way to, at that point, break the taboo of prohibition, which was just kind of coming down on civilization, like a black cloud of, of a cat catastrophic happening, it had nothing beneficial about it. It was entirely um, to the detriment, I think, of humanity, the prohibitionist approach. We should have integrated it, like India, and taught people how to safely use those compounds and um, treat them with respect and make sure that people who use them knew how to use them and that they could get clean compounds and 
you know, people would yes. um, I mean, the fact that the control of one's own consciousness became the matter of the government is, is insanity. I mean, so long as <laughs> <Yeah>. one <laughs> isn't doing anything which is harming either anyone else or society, a government should have no interest in how a person um, holds their consciousness. I- are you satisfied? Are you feeling good about the progress that's being made in understanding the base, the underlying mechanisms of how this LSD works? Um, I think we're heading rapidly in the right direction. And after 50 years of not heading anywhere, that in itself is a great triumph. But... Um, you know, I think there's a long way to go. We're at the foothills of the mountain. It's it's been a very long, yeah, for both of us, a very very long dry period of, mm-hmm. of uh, monumental suppression. Then, yeah. and of course, that's the hope of this series to tell the yeah. public, you know, much more about it, so that they can realize they've been misguided. Um, yeah, and luckily, do you, do you, as I grew up in a totally isolated place outside society, I actually never minded from being excluded from society because I always had a playmate and um, that's really all I needed in life. Was, you know, the I place. understand, it, but of course. <laughs> as Buber said, you know, the, all, all real living is meeting. Um, has, your, has your basic value system as a person, has your value system been changed by the use of psychedelics? Um, no, I would say I was lucky that I had very um, soundly placed parents. So I did. It wasn't a revolution for me at all. It was an evil. Uh-huh. I would say. And actually, I always included my parents, particularly my father, in it. Um, and um, you know, by and my mother, who was, as I say, an old-fashioned Catholic, was so sweet and always said when her Catholic relation said, "Peggy, it's so bad the way you obviously love Amanda so much; it gives a bad reputation to you." And she said, "Oh well, what she does seems to suit her." And you know, um, <laughs> it was very sweet. They came along with me. And my father was a natural um, hip, kind of hippie. Um, he he thought outside the box. So did he? Did, I, did he I ever take LSD? Did your father ever take LSD, Amanda? Sadly, he would have loved to, but I was worried because of the diabetic aspect. Uh huh. Funnily I enough, see. my grandmother was a best friend of. Uh, Aldous Huxley used to come here when he was young, and then she grew up with uh, um, Henry and William James. So they were very embedded in what I later discovered was. Um, the so you're part of a tradition. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're so part it wasn't of a, really a revolt. Well, that, that you're part of a of, of an of a long international. Uh, tradition of people exploring these altered states of consciousness. Absolutely, absolutely. And and now, Bertie, my godfather, who I never met, and who was a very fascinating and brilliant man, um, he, him being a, a Buddhist, and he 
died actually on a retreat up a mountain, I like to think, in a mystical experience. But he was a very strong influence on me, although I never met him. I, I left school at 16 because the nuns refused to give me books. I won the science prize and they refused to give me books on, on, um, on Buddhism. And so I, I thanked them very much and said I'd go and educate myself. So I set off for India to see Bertie to Ceylon. But I, I never got anywhere near it because I only had £25 in my pocket. <laughs> to some now, Syrian desert or somewhere. Tell us um, about how you have passed on this family tradition of being interested in exploring other states of consciousness. How have you passed that on to your son, Cosmo? And my son, Rocky, I'd say. Um, oh, well, thank you. Thank you for adding that, because I've met Cosmo, of course, you know, at the right. film festival in Mendocino, but I yeah. haven't met your own son. So tell us well, about how you've passed on this tradition. And I, we, both me and their father, Joey, um, we never hid anything from them. In fact, we were completely open. And I remember when we took LSD, I'd say to them when they were just little babies or whatever, uh -uh. you know, don't be surprised if our tone of laughter is slightly different because I can't remember what I said. But we never went in for hiding anything. And I think it's a very good approach, actually, because both of them are, you know, got double firsts and distinctions and things at Oxford. and You know, they're hard, clever workers. They're absolutely charming. I'd never be worried that they become an addict, which I think is a great um, danger for young people. And so um, I think to grow up with uh, people who use these compounds well is a benefit, not a harm, if you see what I mean. Um, no. Amanda, many of the elders that I have um, interviewed for this series no longer take psychedelics. Uh, they, they, uh, they share a common bond. Many of them began in the 60s, as you did, and then they took the psychedelics in the 70s and 80s, but their use has trailed off. But then occasionally I run into someone uh, like the philosopher Charles Bush that I interviewed recently, who has taken about a 10-year break. And now at age 80, he's very much looking forward to once again embarking on taking uh, LSD on a regular basis. Where, do you, where are you on that particular thing? Do you think you reach a saturation point, or do you think there's always more to learn? Where do you stand? I, I think there's always more to learn. and. Actually, now I'm doing research. I have been doing for the last, whatever, 15 years, research on the more psychological potential benefits, like with depression or, or um, nicotine addiction, uh, anything, addiction, those sort of things. But now for the last few years I've been researching more on the potential um, for psychedelics to help in the field of neurodegeneration, how, how they uh, en enhance um, cognitive functioning, how they um, increase 
neuroplasticity. We've done some wonderful research showing how you can get physiological markers showing the increase in neuroplasticity. And that's why they're so amazingly beneficial in the treatment of, let's say, depression or addiction or post-traumatic stress disorder. But now I'm getting very interested in researching their qualities in um, neurodegenerative illnesses. I'm working with um, Parkinson and Alzheimer's and those sort of things from mini brains to see how it happens, how they work in the cells and then in animals and in humans. And I'm convinced of their very great beneficial values. And I'm actually very excited by doing some research at the moment. I'm doing, I think, probably the first two um, studies to um, give microdosing, both either LSD or um, natural psilocybin, for palliative care. And it's amazing, the effect. And then actually for very old age, um, it's wonderful. Sometimes even people who've got Alzheimer's and dementia can sparkle into full vitality again with a microdose. So I'm very, very excited about moving forward with that research. And I ideally think we should, uh, once once done the research and um, demonstrated, if one can or not, its efficacy, I think it will make a lovely, happy old age for people instead of being shut away on um, antidepressants and SSRIs and painkillers. Um, they'll hopefully be out in a community or in a, a care home, which is really a care home and stimulates old people instead of um, suppressing them. And I, I think these compounds can bring about a paradigm shift in where humans are at the moment. I think humanity is at a a very disillusioned um, point. I mean, we're absolutely brilliant. We all know that. We can be. But um, probably a mental health, we know, is in an epidemic at the moment, rising all the time, more and more people taking SSRIs, which is the only medication that the pharmaceutical industry has to offer and it's not a good medicine and um, our use of psychedelic assisted therapy is proving itself to be very very much better in its results we're getting 80 percent success rates and funnily enough what i learned um bart who's my um love Sixties was um, didn't like my smoking. I, I started smoking nicotine very young because I was very tall and I wanted to stop growing. So at thirteen, I became addicted to nicotine, and I rather liked the hand. And so anyway, I was a nicotine head. And then he said, "What a repulsive habit it was." So I decided, well, I'll take a trip of LSD and give it up. And so I did one trip, and I never smoked again. And so when kind of 50 years later, I was talking to Roland Griffiths about what study we might do together at John Hopkins, with I think I had 
$5,000 to offer. And my suggestion was, why don't we do using psychedelics to overcome nicotine addiction? Mm-hmm. And we did, and that turned into a very, very successful uh, study with kind of 80% success rate for overcoming uh, tobacco uh, use. And I, I long, I, I'm very much, I was longing to start a study using LSD to overcome opioid addiction. I, I mean, I think, and now we understand why they bring, how they bring about these changes. It's by turning off the ego mechanism, getting the whole brain unified in connectivity, and increasing neuroplasticity to the state where a person can kind of fall into the arms of a better setting. And so they can come out um, not addicted or not depressed. But obviously, it might not last forever, that new setting. So one must provide access to suffering people who need psychedelic-assisted therapy. And I think that's a very, um, very urgent need for society and for government. I mean, government, the best governments are like good parents. They look after their children, provide what they need, and try to prevent them from doing harm to themselves, like becoming addicts. And so I think we really need to change our drug policies rapidly. We need to decriminalize all compounds. We need to reschedule compounds like psychedelics, indeed psychedelics from schedule. Um, in England, it's schedule um, three, which is the most harmful, but in America, I think it's the opposite. Um, but anyway, they need to be removed from the most harmful and supposedly the most dangerous because they are not. The scientific evidence shows they are non-addictive, they're non-toxic, non-addictive, they're amazing compounds. They hit so many different wonderful boxes that they can bring about change, but they're non-toxic and non-addictive. And so we need to learn as a society how to integrate them. And they are not for everyone. It's, It's like in tribal societies, you have the shamans and the people who take the ceremonies, and then you have the people who maybe watch and benefit from other people taking them. But so we need to grow our society and integrate the knowledge of psychedelics. And I know you think the same. And I think slowly when we do that and slowly get into balance with that, we have a great chance of enhancing humanity's most noble qualities and hopefully improving our health and and outlook. And what can you tell us about the present uh, political climate in England with regard to psychedelic science and psychedelic research? I'd say um, the, the climate in England is slightly akin to North Korea or somewhere. I mean, we're sadly left behind for an intelligent com- country. You know, we used to be quite a, at the, the leadership. We uh, heroin, uh, we had almost no heroin addicts, and 
those we had, they could go to the chemist, queue up and get their heroin. And so no crime was involved. And then, um, but then, thanks to the lead of America, I have to say, um, yes. we criminalized everything and the whole world did. And the UN conventions are just based on rubbish, you know, and they should be um, rewritten. In fact, I, with the leading scientist um, in the world on those matters, rewrote them and so gave the wording of the convention so that an individual country could, if they wanted to, uh, decriminalize and regulate um, if they thought that was the best approach for their citizens. And I hope in time, and in fact, America, who created the hiatus, is also the first to move out of it for financial reasons, largely. I mean, you know, it's, it's good business. Um, it's good business. Industry is flocking to the psychedelics as the new paradise, they see it, because they see the money bells kind of ringing about the psychedelic sciences now. So, I mean, um, and that's good news in the sense that we want people to study, understand, learn, use discriminately, I think, and um, remove this silly, mistaken, taboo, um, which humanity suffered from for probably, I think, Christianity was very effective in um, criminalizing altered states of consciousness. But I think it's a healthier society which integrates the, the experience of altered states. And, you, um, you mentioned earlier that um, you didn't give or share uh, LSD with your dad because he was diabetic. Mm -hmm. um, are there other particular groups that you would caution against the use of psychedelics that come to mind? Yes, I, th I think, you know, um, people on the borderline of psychosis and, and mental illness certainly shouldn't do it um, outside a kind of guided setting, put it that way. Um, uh -huh. My father, I, 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 he was very on the cusp of altered states anyhow, he was kind of thing. And I really, I, I, you know, he sometimes went into a terrible, um, um, what do you call it, sugar lapse, shortage of sugar. And, and I was just worried that I wouldn't be able to know what happened. You know, I, I, I felt I would be taking a risk. So I didn't yes. do so. But I, I regret, I don't think, I mean, I should have been able to control the risk. But um, anyway, but he was very interested in the whole hypothesis of it. And the first time, um, I remember when Bart uh, came to Beckley and we were leaving the house and uh, he, had, he had written his understanding of this uh, hypothesis, two hypotheses, one of the underlying changes in, in cerebral blood supply in the different levels of consciousness and the second about the ego. And, and my father read it all, uh, you know, word for word and loved it. So that was very charming. But, um, so, 
my, I think this will probably be my second to last question, which is, what what advice would you give to some young people who are listening to this program? They've never uh, taken uh, LSD before. They're fascinated by what they hear, and they want to uh, embark. So what might you say to those people who are listening? Well, you know, we live in, a, in an environment of prohibition, and hopefully that will change because for those people, it'd be wonderful if they could go to um, what would be the modern addition of the church or the community centre and be introduced to these things in a um, safe and, and lovely way. And I think that would be a great advantage. And, you know, I, I experimented myself and, and benefited from it, but I was very, very lucky in meeting the one person at that point of history who could tell me how to take these compounds safely. And they are potentially dangerous because they're very powerful. I mean, LSD works at one millionth of a gram or five millionth of a gram actually being able to change your consciousness. So you have to, you know, you, well, my first thing is if ever you do, be sure to take time release vitamin C and have plenty of sweet meats like all countries who use cannabis and altered states like Morocco or Egypt or India or, you know, the things that you can um, keep your sugar level more or less normal. But a society needs to protect the young and, and um, um, provide a better setting for those who don't have it naturally. And, and I'm sure we're going in that direction. Um, and it should be for the rich and the poor, certainly not just for the rich. And so, you know, I, I think retreat centers and all of those sort of things are wonderful. May, maybe, hopefully, they'll flourish and more young people will be able to experience altered states because, I mean, as um, William James said, it's seeing through the veils. It's wonderful to see different levels and feel higher up the mountain, see farther landscapes. So, you know, but unfortunately at the moment, our governments, which are like the ego in the head, but a lot of governments, you know, the whole, the governments are controlled, we have to say, by America. So it's essential for America to change. And indeed you are, you're leading change at Oregon and in certain places. So well done. Long may flourish. Amanda, thank you very much for taking the time from your busy life, your busy research schedule. And, and thank you most of all for leading the way on this crusade that I've been part of with you from a distance for over 50 years. <laughs> so thank you for asking me. Lovely being with and you. Terrific. <laughs> and, and thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, with special thanks 
to our producer, Charlie Dice, our sound engineer, David Springer, who together, working as a team, make this broadcast possible. This program and our other programs can all be found archived on our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.